Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. I have an announcement about Tuesday evening meetings. We're going to take about a month and a half break. And there won't be a Tuesday evening Bible study meeting until the first Tuesday in August, which I can't remember what that date is right now, but it's the first Tuesday in August. And the reason why is because there's a lot of things going on in the summer. So next week, we're going to be on a mini vacation. Yay. And then, (laughs) but not on Sunday, just during the week for a few, three days, and then uh, the week after that is Vacation Bible School, and all of you are going to be busy at that, of course, and then the week after that is 4th of July is on Tuesday, and I figured nobody would show up if we had this, because we've got fireworks, hamburgers, all that stuff, and then we were going to Missouri for the youth trip, so we just thought we'd make it easy and say, first Tuesday. So August the 1st, that'll be the next meeting after tonight, and I'll review and catch up to where we are tonight, okay? So, amen. Father, I thank you for your word this evening, and I just pray that you open our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us and speak to our hearts, Lord. I just pray that you bring your word to us in ways that it causes us to grow and causes us to know you in a stronger way in our lives, Lord. And I thank you for that, that your word always works and always produces what you send it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be opening uh, Hebrews chapter 8 this evening, and I think we'll get through the entire chapter of chapter 8, because at least half of it is a quote from the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 8. And we're actually starting this evening, so this probably isn't the best breaking point, for a break, but I'll get you caught back up. We're starting this evening uh, the fifth section of the book as I divided the sections of this book uh, where we are talking about Christ's superior sacrifice. So we just finished talking about his priesthood as a priest, and now we'll be still talking about his priesthood but focusing more on his sacrifice and uh, based on Scripture, why his sacrifice is superior to those sacrifices offered in the Old Testament. So in your notes, it just says there at the beginning, this goes all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, by the way, it just says there at the beginning, this is the fourth argument, and building on the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek, and how that priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, that the priestly ministry and the sacrifice of Jesus is now shown from Scripture, again, everything's based on Scripture, to be superior to that of the Old Covenant. And the need for the New Covenant is shown, that covenant made by the blood of Jesus on the basis of a better promise in Him, and that's all established by Scripture. So let's start with chapter 8, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 6 in the beginning, and like with each one of these arguments, it seems that at the beginning there's a thesis statement, just a statement uh, of of the main point of what is now being said, and we have that again here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. But I'm going to just take them one verse, one or two or three verses at a time, little sections at a time. So we'll start with chapter 8, verse 1. It says, now the main point in what has been said is this. So we, we know that this is the main point because it actually says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, before we move on, I want to talk about a couple of things in verse 1. So, first of all, what's said here in verse 1 still harkens back to the 110th Psalm, whereas the whole focus has been for a few chapters on the 110th Psalm. Because Psalm 110, verse 1, begins... Like this, it says, a psalm of David, and that part is also a part of the scripture, even though it's not headed under the verse. It says, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So it's very important to this argument, and this keeps being brought up again and again, that this psalm cannot be concerning David because David wrote the psalm, and he's talking about two other people. And one of them is, he calls the Lord, and the other one he calls my Lord. And so it's talking about the Father and the Son. Now, if you were to bring that point up to any Orthodox Jewish rabbi today, he'd have a thousand ways to try to argue that away, but they did back then also. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is very simple. David wrote this, and he did not write this about himself. He's talking about the Lord who is saying to my Lord. And it's also interesting that it's in the present tense. The Lord says to my Lord, almost as if, and I don't really know how it worked. You know, inspiration seems to have worked in different ways with different writers of, of the scripture, but it's the same inspiration. Sometimes I wonder, what did David feel when he was writing that down? You know, because it's a pretty amazing statement to write down. Uh, not the Lord said to my Lord, like if I was preaching, I would say, now the Lord said to my Lord, based on Psalm 110, I'd have some reference to go to. But he's saying, the Lord says to my Lord. So it seems that he's having this revelation, much like Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6, where he actually is caught up into heaven, and he's standing before the throne of God, or like John in the book of Revelation. But however it worked, it says what it says, and the Lord inspired David to write these words, and he wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Another interesting thing about that statement is so often when we think about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, we forget about the enemies part of it. That this is actually a, a, almost a, a, a military statement on the, on the, on the, uh, uh, from, from a king. That he's saying, you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so the father is enforcing the kingship of his son, Jesus Christ. And we still live in that age. And so we know that Jesus, after his resurrection, 40 days later, ascended to the right hand of the father. And the New Testament speaks about this over and over again. But we'll get some really interesting details concerning that uh, here. So he is our high priest. And unlike Aaron, and unlike the descendants of Aaron, he has completed his ministry. It's already done. The idea of sitting means that you finish the job, right? Enter into this rest and finish this. Sit now at my right hand. You've finished what you were to do. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So he's completed this ministry. He's made propitiation for our sin. He's get, brought us forgiveness of sin and restoration unto God. Um, and he's entered now into the rest of his kingdom. He's seated with God the Father upon his throne and at his right hand. Another interesting thing in verse 1 is this word majesty. It says, it's a great song, by the way. It says, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So that seat uh, would be vacant if Jesus had not taken it because it belongs to him. But he has taken his seat. And his seat is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Well, of course, it's talking about the Father God, but the word majesty is actually a really interesting title for God in the New Testament, the word majesty, which in the Greek, by the way, is megalosene, and it comes from the Greek root megas, which we still have, you know, mega. It means something really, really big, something that is superior to everything else. And I believe that that word is chosen by the Holy Spirit here because the theme of what we're talking about is the superiority of Christ, that he's better than anyone else. And so his father is called the majesty, that he is seated at the right hand of the, of the mega, at the right hand of his majesty. And it's not, the word majesty is actually only, this particular Greek word is only used three times in the New Testament. One is by Jude and twice in Hebrews. And only in Hebrews is it used to describe or as a title, as a divine title, as a title for the Father God. So it's very important to the point and the subject of Hebrews, that Christ is superior. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, 
And in verse 3, we read, And he is the radiance, Jesus is the radiance of his, of the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So that's repeating the same theme throughout each one of these arguments. And it's brought out in the beginning of this also. So let's move on to verse 2. So it says, we have such a high priest in verse 1, and then the part we just read, and then verse 2, still describing this high priest that we have, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So let's talk about that just for a few minutes. Um, it says that he is a minister. And we'll talk about this word when we get down a little bit further because it's going to be repeated. That he is a minister, and, but I'll tell you now that it's referring to a priest. Okay? That he is a minister, but where is his ministry located? Well, we already know where he's located because it tells us that he is at the right hand of the Father, right? At the right hand of the majesty. So his ministry is located in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So there is in heaven a sanctuary and a true tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, um, it's also, to me, it's interesting that nothing is made of the temple in Hebrews. It's all about the tabernacle. You know, the temple was a, supposed to be a permanent house for God, um, because the tabernacle moved around. Wherever the people went, that's where the tabernacle would go with them. And when the people of God were settled in the land of Israel, then David wanted to build a, a temple for God in the place of the tabernacle. And if you'll remember that story, God actually never told David to build a temple. But David asked him, may I build a temple? And eventually God gives him permission through the prophet that tells him that you will not be able to do this because you are a bloody man. You are a man of war. And that could be understood in two ways. In one way that you have blood on your hands, and I don't want someone who is a, and it was, you know, for the most part, not in the case of Uri the Hittite for sure, but for the most part it was righteous war, you know, that he wasn't doing something evil and going to battle. But because you are a bloody man, you are a military man, I don't want you to build my, this temple for me. And it could also be taken in the sense of you're not going to have time to build this temple because you'll be fighting wars all the way to the end of your life, which is indeed true. And that's not a time for building. It's a time for tearing down when wars are being fought. But you know the story that Solomon uh, made peace and had the greatest empire in the history of Israel and that he built this temple. But when David approached God about this, the prophet came to him and gave him an answer. And I'm not going to open it to read it now, but it's, it's really cool that God says to David, I never asked you to build a house for me, that I promised you that I will build your house up. And I, I love that verse because it tells us that God doesn't need our tithes or our offerings or anything that we can give to God. When we give to God, we're really just blessing ourselves. It's an avenue for God to be able to bless us. God doesn't need those things. He wants to bless us. He wants to build up our house. He wants to redeem us uh, unto, un, unto the Father. Some people get this completely wrong idea about giving to God as if God had some need. And God says, I don't need you to build this. And actually, God's plan was for it to be a tabernacle because the tabernacle is a much better picture of the life of a Christian today than a temple ever is because the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us. So wherever we go, the Holy Spirit is with us. Now that doesn't mean you don't need to go to a church. You, you, you just have church on your own out in the woods somewhere while you're fishing or something like that. Uh, Hebrews is going to get to that. We've already talked about that. Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But it does mean that we don't have to be in a certain city or in a certain place in order to encounter the presence of God, in order uh, to rightly worship the Father. And Jesus talked about this to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, when she said, Which, who, who's right, 
because our fathers say that you should worship in Samaria, uh, and your fathers say that you should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus tells her, your fathers are wrong. You're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. However, there's a time coming, and now already is, when it won't matter whether you're in Jerusalem or Samaria or Yarrington, Nevada, because the Father is seeking out and looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the Holy Spirit lives on in, in the inside of us. So this is the picture of a, tabern a tabernacle, a people who are on the move following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, following the presence of God. It's the real picture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as a tabernacle, much more so than a temple. And temples used also in the New Testament, and that's not wrong, but it's very specific to Hebrews to talk about this tabernacle. So, that being said, <laughs> what, what is the sanctuary? So, in the tabernacle, without putting diagrams up or anything, if you have one of these Bibles with pictures in the back, you can probably find a diagram of this. But in the tabernacle, there is a holy of holies, right? And in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and, in, and then right as a part of the holy of holies, but the holy of holies is like in, encased in it, is what's called the holy place, or we would say the sanctuary. And so the word sanctuary includes both the holy place and the holy of holies. And nobody can go into the sanctuary, ex according to the law, except for a priest. And nobody can go all the way into the holy of holies except for the high priest, and only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, right? So it's saying that his ministry is in a different sanctuary. In a sense, it's the same sanctuary, but it's the sanctuary, the true sanctuary, and the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and was not pitched by man, but it was pitched by the Lord. So then another thing I want to bring out is the word true. Uh, it says that it was the true tabernacle. And um, just, just so you get a, a, a perspective from the from the scripture that maybe you've never thought of before. The, the Greek word for true and as is for truth, uh, the noun and the adjective true, here the adjective is used, means very literally unconcealed. It means unconcealed. And perhaps that's an image of truth that you've never thought of before, but the readers of the original, of course, they would have just used this word every day, just like we use words every day without thinking necessarily what the exact uh, uh, original meaning of that is, but nonetheless, it, it's inside of their language. It's inside the language of the New Testament. That this is, truth is that which is unconcealed. That you see it for what it really is. It has no hidden meaning. So the tabernacle on earth has a very deep hidden meaning. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to courses like this or not, or Bible school, or some pastor did a uh, a series on this or something with pictures and diagrams of the tabernacle. I mean, every single little piece of furniture, every single little uh, piece of wood, you know, if you can find some meaning in that, and there are extremely detailed descriptions of things in the Old Testament, the kind of descriptions that can, can make you bored when you're reading those chapters if you don't pay really close attention because it just keeps going on and on about all these little, little things. And so the meaning can be darkened and not so easy to see. And, but the, the true tabernacle means the tabernacle which is unconcealed. It's unobscured. It has no hidden meaning. And the word tabernacle, just in case you didn't know it, means tent. You could just translate this as tent in English. But when we use the word tabernacle, we're using that because it specifically signifies the sacred tent, the tabernacle, the place where God meets with man. So let me take just a minute and read Exodus 33. Exodus 33, and just one, one or two verses out of this. In Exodus 33, um, it says, and um, verse 7, Exodus 33, 7, Now Moses, this is during the time they're in the wilderness, obviously, now Moses used to take the tent, used to take means he did this all the time, take the tent, that's the tabernacle, 
and pitch it outside the camp. So God didn't pitch it, Moses pitched it a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. Notice what the tabernacle is called. It's called the tent of meeting. It's supposed to be the place where God meets with man. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, because that's where you meet the Lord. Notice that it's outside the camp. That theme's going to come up again in Hebrews later of how Jesus suffered for us outside the camp. We're not going to get to that this evening. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would rise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And that's kind of interesting. It's not spelled out exactly like that, but when, exactly like this, but when you read it, you get the sense of everyone who sought the Lord could go there, but Moses is the only one that actually did. Everybody else just stood there and let Moses be there for them. Okay, And so Moses would enter the tent, and the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. So they would worship God, but they didn't go to meet him there. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And there we find out, oh, wait a minute. Joshua always went with him. So somebody else could go to church with Moses if they wanted to, right? And Joshua had this hunger for God that he would stay in that tent even after Moses left. So it says in verse 2 that Jesus has, is this minister, and he's in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. So this tabernacle is pitched in the heavenlies. I want to say something to you that is so easy for us to forget in our day-to-day lives. But what is heavenly is reality. What is earthly is merely a shadow cast by God's light. The best of what we have on this earth is a copy of what God has in heaven. The tabernacle on the earth is a copy of what God had already pitched in heaven. Now, it doesn't say when he pitched it, but I think it's implied that he pitched it on that seventh day, on that Sabbath day, because it so talks about this rest. And God wanted us to dwell in this rest together with him because there was a time before our sin when heaven and earth were as one. And that time is no longer, but it will come again. And we read in Revelation that the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven unto earth. So that is the reality, and it's not... Uh, and what's on earth is the copy. There used to be this saying, I think when I was a kid and a teenager, it was kind of popular, that person's uh, so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good. I don't really hear that saying anymore, and I think it's because nobody's heavenly-minded anymore. <laughs> but honestly, I remember hearing that and thinking then, if you were really heavenly-minded, I think you would be of the most earthly good. And, and so there's nothing wrong with being heavenly-minded and having your head in the clouds if it's in the reality of the kingdom of God. Because that's the real, and this is a copy. Look at verse 3. Let's read verses 3 through 5. For every high priest is is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Now that's, if you didn't know Hebrew history, that might be news to you, but makes perfect sense to everybody that was reading this the first time. That's what his job is, is to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also, that this high priest, referring to Jesus, also have something to offer. Notice that high priest, if you have the same translation I do, is in italics because it's not in the original. In the original it says, so it is necessary that this, referring to Jesus, that's already been mentioned, also have something to offer. So we're going to be talking about his sacrifice. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. We just talked about that. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, and this is a quote from the scripture, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. That's Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40. So quoting the scripture, the writer of Hebrews is saying, 
that God specifically instructed and commanded Moses that he make an exact copy of what was shown to him when he was up on the mountain. So when he was up on that mountain for 40 days in the cloud of glory, and the glory was so strong, the presence of God was so strong, you remember that when he came down, the people could not stand to look at him because his face was shining so brightly. And so he covered his face over so that the people could look at him. And then after the glory waned, he kept the cover on because he was just like you and me. You know, when the glory days are over, it's kind of sad. So you keep up the appearances of that glory for a while. And that's used as an example in the New Testament of how when the Jews today read the scripture, there's still a cover that's over their eyes. And they're not able to see the truth that's in the Old Testament until the Lord removes that cover. And I would say that that's true for any person who's an unbeliever. If there's anyone that you've been praying for and that you minister the Word of God to and you want to see them come to Jesus, a very important part of those prayers is for the blinders to be removed from their eyes, for the cover to be removed from their eyes, because the Bible says specifically that Satan blinds their eyes so that they cannot see the truth of the gospel. And you can preach until you're blue in the face, but until that revelation comes and the Holy Spirit removes those blinders from their eyes, what's right before their face, they, they can't even see. And, and then all of a sudden, it all becomes very obvious and very, very clear. So Moses is up on that mountain in that glory, and the Lord reveals to them him this pattern. Now the Greek word for pattern is typos, and typos is where we get our word type, okay? And type means exactly what you think it means. If you think about it, originally it means to pound something out and leave an impression uh, with what, whatever instrument you use to pound it out, just like when something is typeset, right? And we still type on our computers, but we're not really typing because we don't have little hammers doing this anymore. But we used to have little hammers doing that, and that was actually typing. We were leaving an impression with ink on a, a piece of paper. And so... This word typos, it, it means that. It means a type, it means an impression, it means a mold. So somehow, we don't know how, but Moses, in that cloud of glory, it was revealed to him the type, the impression, the mold of the heavenly tabernacle. So God did not pitch his tent after Moses pitched the tent on earth. God had pitched his tent long before Moses pitched the tent on the earth. That was the original. And somehow Moses was able to see this, and it was impressed on his imagination, and impressed on his memory, impressed on the physical senses that God had given him as a man. And then he was able to be told by God when he came down from the mountain, you have not forgotten what you saw, so you make sure that you build this tabernacle exactly what I showed you. We have the same thing with, with Noah. He's given you know, concise instructions on how he has to build that, that ark. And there's a lot of spiritual truth in that and in God's plan for our lives, that he actually has a plan for our lives and we can trust him and we can follow that plan and build things according to the scripture and do things the way that he's showing us to do things and listen to the Holy Spirit and, and follow him because he knows what he's doing. So you probably know, you've probably encountered this in the Old Testament already, when Moses does give command for the tabernacle to be built, uh, down to the very finest detail of that tabernacle. He's, he's very picky. that Everything has to be done this exact way because that was the type that he saw when he was up on the mountain in the presence uh, of God. So as we go through these chapters, there's going to be a reference to the tabernacle uh, that Moses pitched on the earth. And that, that's good because when we look at the copy, we can better understand the original right? And the better we understand the original, the better we can be a copy of the original in our church and in our lives, the better we can follow Jesus. So one of the things that we see here is that an earthly high priest is appointed by God to offer sacrifices and gifts up to God. Of course, he's offering them on the behalf of the people. So Jesus also must have an offering. And his offering, since this is just the logic that Hebrews is following, since his ministry is at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly tabernacle, his offering has to be something better than the offerings that the Levites were offering in the Old Testament. 
And, and again, try to always remember as we read, are reading this, that when this was written, the temple still stood in Jerusalem. They were actually still offering these sacrifices every single day. It wasn't just talking about something that was 2,000 years ago. It was talking about something right now. And try to apply that to our lives, whatever it is in this world, that Jesus is better than all of it. Whatever there may be that's good or worthy or beautiful, that this is the majesty. So Jesus must have a better offering that is better because he wouldn't even be qualified to offer up an offering on the earth as according to the Old Testament. You remember that there was a time when a man named Saul, who was God's anointed king, and God chose Saul out to be king, just like he did David. And you remember that there was a time, it was his great failure in his life, was when he could not wait for Samuel, and he offered the sacrifice himself. And he had no right to offer that sacrifice. He was not anointed to stand in the place that only Samuel was anointed to stand in at that time. So this is a very serious thing. Even Jesus could not have, it's kind of weird to think of that, but you know, every time we read about Jesus in the temple, he's not in the sanctuary. He's not in the Holy of Holies. And we think, well, he should have just busted that door down and said, this is my father's house, but no. He did not come to break the law. He came to fulfill the law. He had no right to enter that sanctuary because he's not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. And that's the point that's being made. So his sanctuary is the true sanctuary, the reality, the real and true unconcealed tabernacle that is in heaven. So his offering there must be a better offering. Now, in, uh, another interesting thing, one more thing that I want to point out, out of here is this word, this where it says, um, um, da, 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 da. Um, in um, verse 3, it says, So it is necessary that this also have something to offer. So the word necessary, and it means this in English, and sometimes I don't want to get too nitpicky with all these things, but they are really cool. It's actually a really amazing word in the Greek. And uh, this isn't the only place it's used. But, but it is a really amazing word that has some really deep theological meanings to it. And what it means, and it means the same thing in English, that it's something of a force of God's will that cannot be resisted. Sometimes we use it in the wrong way, but if something is truly necessary, you know, it's necessary that you eat, it's necessary that you sleep, and other bodily functions, and there's no way you can live without doing them. This is God's will. It's how it's designed. And it absolutely cannot be changed. The only one who could change that would be God himself. And so this uses very strong word that to say that, and we know what the sacrifice of Jesus is, so I'm not jumping ahead of myself. And uh, it's already been brought out in Hebrews and will be brought out again. And as you were reading this for the first time, you would already know. But we need to understand the necessity of Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying for our sin. He even asked the Father about it. If it's possible to not do this, then I I don't really want to do it. I wish this cup would pass away from me. But not my will be done, but your will be done. It's the force of necessity, the force of God's will, which absolutely cannot be um, resisted, and it cannot be stopped, and his will will be accomplished in the end. So then look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, and the, uh, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So Jesus has obtained this more excellent ministry. The word obtained tells us that he reached a goal, right? He obtained something. So it tells us there was a journey to get to that place. And so again, it's drawing us back to the understanding that's already been here, that he was obedient unto the cross, and that he learned obedience through the things which he suffered, as we already read. And he was raised up from the dead. He did not raise himself up from the dead. It's fair to say Christ is risen, 
But it, it's really not exactly scriptural to say Christ raised himself up from the dead. The scripture is very clear that the Father raised him up from the dead. The Father justified him. The Father who on the cross, Jesus had said, why hast thou forsaken me? In the resurrection, he fulfilled his promise and raised him up from the dead because in Christ there had been no sin. And Jesus died for our sin. So he was raised up from the dead. He has been uh, commanded uh, by his father to take his seat at his right hand until he makes his enemies um, his, his footstool. So he obtained this more excellent ministry. So we pay attention to the words more excellent because again, we have the theme of superiority. Uh, excellent, and it means this in English also, so I'm not going to give you the Greek word. It means something that's completely different. It's superior to everyone else. If someone did excellent on a test, that means he did way better than anybody else in the class. It used to be, I don't know how they pass out A's, B's, and C's these days, but it used to be an A plus meant excellent, right? That you didn't get anything wrong. And as compared to others, a B is good, a B was good, but it wasn't excellent. So this is something that's excellent. It excels. It goes beyond what anybody else has. And it's a ministry that Jesus has, a superior ministry. And the word ministry in the Greek is the same word that we get our word liturgy from. He has a liturgy. If any of you used to be Catholics, you know what a liturgy is. It's the whole church service thing. But liturgy means the ministry of the priest. Okay, It's the service of the high priest in making propitiation for the sin of men before God. So that means, because he has obtained this more excellent ministry, that he alone can be the mediator of a better covenant, and that better covenant is legally enacted on, on better promises. Okay, so We're going to talk about the covenant now throughout to the end of this chapter. So this is his liturgy. It's his ministry. It doesn't belong to Aaron. It doesn't belong to Moses. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to anyone else. It's exclusively his ministry. He is the high priest. And his are all the promises. We've already talked about this. The promises that God even made to Abraham. He was actually making them to his son, who is the, our representative, the son of man. So the promises that we have, the Bible says all of these promises, they are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. They weren't made to me without, all alone, so it doesn't depend on my absolute faithfulness all the time. There is room for me to make mistakes. There is room for me to fail, and I don't lose the promise because of that. I simply confess my sin, and I come before God, and I start growing up, and I try to be more like Christ, and I follow Him closer. But the promises are not based on some law, okay, that I fulfill or that I've done or that somebody, some other priest has done on my behalf. The promises belong to Jesus. We've already talked about this. It's the oath that God gave. He did not give an oath concerning Aaron or the Levites, but he gave an oath concerning uh, him who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember what we talked about last week with the change of the priesthood and then the change of the law, and that the law was given on the basis of the priesthood. Does anybody remember that? So the priesthood is actually the foundation for the law, not vice versa. So he is the priest and he has these promises between, that, that his father has given to him. So on these promises, a new law, it would be fair to say new law, as well as new covenant. But a new, co because the law is a covenant. But a new covenant has been legally enacted. Again, he's not, just as we talked about la last week, Jesus is not a priest because we have the new covenant. We have the new covenant because he is our priest. We don't have these promises because we have a new covenant. We have the new covenant because the promises were given to Jesus for the most ancient of times and before the time even began. So there's no way that that covenant can ever be destroyed. But if the priesthood of Aaron were to be destroyed, then the whole Old Testament would completely cease. To, not, not the words, you understand what I'm saying, but the, the system of the law that was enacted would cease to have authority 
because the priesthood that it was founded upon was lost. Now, we'll talk about that more in just a minute, but remember, within a few years of this being written, the temple will actually be destroyed, and for now, 1,950 years later, it's still never been rebuilt. And there is no priesthood of Aaron today because there is no temple. There's no place to offer sacrifices. And the whole reason the priest is appointed is to offer up the, these sacrifices. So the law was enacted on the foundation of the Levitical priesthood, and the new covenant is enacted on the foundation of Jesus Christ himself. When it says he is the mediator, that means you know, that he's the one who makes it happen, that it's all built on the foundation of Jesus. Okay, so now we're going to go to verses 7 through 13, the most part of which is a quote from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. If you have a Bible like mine, it'll be where, where it's quoting from the Old Testament. And I, I like Bibles like this when they do this in English. It'll be set apart with a different font or something like that. So you know that they're quoting something from the Old Testament. In mine, it's like kind of an all-cap font, and then it's, it's indented like a poem or something like that so that you know that that's a quote from the Old Testament. But this quote comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. So I'm not going to turn back there because it's pretty much word for word. We're just going to read it uh, here in Hebrews. And let's just begin by reading from verses 7 all the way through 12. Not 13 yet, but all the way through 12. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. You don't need a, a new covenant if the, if the one you already have is working. But, but it's not working for the purpose of salvation. Again, we're not going to go to Galatians Day. Maybe we'll do this sometime. But Paul very clearly explains that that covenant is there to lead us to Christ. It's pointing forward to Christ. It was not given to save us. Verse 8, For finding fault with them, he, God says, Behold, in Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Remember that John says in 1 John, that you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit, and you know all things. He's referring back to this verse. That everyone will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, before we read verse 13, I want us to look at these verses and I want to give you four reasons that are stated here, and there could be more, but four reasons that are stated here of why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And before I do that, just explain for a minute about covenant so you understand this, okay? In the old covenant, when a covenant is made, what, what is a covenant? You know, marriage is like a covenant, right? And, and the point of a covenant is to join people together with one another. And the idea is that there is a positive purpose in this, this covenant. There's a reason you want to be joined together. So this covenant is God picks out Israel while they're in the land of Egypt, and he takes them unto himself, and he leads them through a baptism. They go through the Red Sea. And he takes them unto himself. And he cares for them in the wilderness. But the covenant never works because the people's heart don't, doesn't change. Right? And, and, and God says this. That we have this covenant, but it, it doesn't work. Because you're not really following me. You're not listening to me. You're not in connection with me. You don't have a heart change. You know, it's very possible for people to go to church all their lives and never have a heart change. 
never really be born again, never really have a relationship with God and be in contact with the Holy Spirit. And if that happens, then that's the fault of preachers. That's the fault of churches for not preaching the gospel as the gospel is, that a person has to come to Jesus. He has to repent of his sin and turn to him, and, and there'll be a heart change. And this change is called, I will write my laws, uh, I'll put them in your mind, and I'll write them on your heart. Okay, so where, does his law, where is his law located in the Old Covenant? It's on tablets of stone, right? And where are those tablets of stone? They're in a box that's called the Ark. And it's in the Holy of Holies. And only one person can go in there, and only once a year, and this is the high priest. So we have a picture of David when he brings the Ark out, and he dances before the Ark, and we have, you know, of, of what Jesus wants to do. We have some little pictures of this in the Old Testament. Some shadows cast from the light uh, of the Lord. But the church... And we so don't appreciate what we have. The church is the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. And the Word of God is in our mind. And it's written on our hearts, so much so that the Scripture says we have the mind of Christ. And the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present when we gather together in church. Sometimes I come to church and I think, I can't understand why there aren't 5,000 people here. That I think Moses thought the same thing. What are you guys standing in the doors of your tent for? Let's go to meeting. Let's go to the tent of meeting. And they're like, no, sorry, right. you just go for us and be sure and throw up a little prayer to Jesus for us there when you get to church. Okay, I'll pray for you. But they're just missing out on the, on the presence of God. So this is a, the covenant, that we have this covenant, right? So the old covenant is, is fault, has fault because it doesn't change people's hearts. It only teaches them that they're sinners. It only reminds them of their sin. Okay? It doesn't lead them to the Savior. Well, it does lead them to the Savior eventually, but if they don't listen and don't follow their teacher, then they don't come. Okay, so four reasons why we see here the New Covenant is superior to the Old Covenant, and these are really simple. Number one, every covenant is governed by its own laws. Every covenant is governed with blessings, when we keep the covenant and curses for breaking the covenant. Every covenant is a contract, okay? And a contract has conditions in it. And every contract that exists on planet Earth to this day has blessings that are conditioned for keeping that contract. If you pay your mortgage on time or whatever it is you need to do, and if you don't pay on time, then there are curses. Your interest rate goes up or something else happens. Right? Or eventually you get your house taken away. And so this is true of every covenant. The laws of the Old Covenant are written in stone by God. Uh, they were written by, through the agency of angels. They're in the, uh, held in the Ark of the Covenant. They are interpreted in the Pentateuch and the five books of Moses. They are interpreted uh, there. And in uh, the Pentateuch, we have both the blessings and the curses. And I'm not going to take the time to read these. Perhaps you've read them before, probably you have, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14 are some of our favorite verses in the Bible because they talk about all the blessings that God wants to bring on us. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. But then, having spent 14 verses on blessing, God sets out 54 verses on curses. And the rest of the chapter goes all the way to verse 68 from verse 15, telling about all the curses that are going to come on you if you do not keep this covenant. And throughout the history of the Old Testament, we see that they keep coming on them and coming on them and coming on them over again. And God never gives up on them. His mercy triumphs over judgment, but the spankings are hard. They go through all of these curses over and over again because they do not keep the covenant. But the laws of the new covenant are different. If we go, I'm going to just give you a few verses that you know well, but just put them in the context. John chapter 13 and verse 34. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment or a new law I give to you. And here's the law, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
by this all men will know that you are my disciples. In other words, by this, by your keeping of this commandment, when you keep my simple one commandment to love one another, everyone in the world will know that you are in covenant with me. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And then in chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus goes on and says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the commandments are simple. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Remember we talked about the true tabernacle. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. We talked about these blinders on their eyes. May you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then in um, chapter uh, 15 and in verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. You are in covenant with me if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and to bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. These are the words of Jesus that are talking about the covenant, okay? They are the most central verses in the Bible. Jeremiah is looking forward to what Jesus is saying here. And all of Paul's teaching and John and everything about love that's in the rest of the New Testament is looking backwards to what Jesus is saying here, is explaining what Jesus is saying here, is applying what Jesus is saying here, that we have a new covenant. And in this covenant, there is one single law, and that is the law of to love, because God is love. And not only have you been given this commandment, but we have been given the Holy Spirit of God. God himself lives on the inside of us. So under the new covenant, our hearts are changed. He says, I'll put that law in your heart. I'll put my Holy Spirit in your heart. So it's not impossible to love even your enemy. And you know this by experience. It might be hard but at the end of the day, when you really get in contact with Jesus, suddenly you start, the mercy of God starts washing over you. And you feel that love again. That no, I cannot just hate a person. No matter what they did to me, I forgive them. And I will walk in the love of God. Because that is who God is. And if I do not do that, then I'm obviously not even walking in covenant with God. And how can I expect His blessings on my life. Nothing is left but just curses then. Curses that I bring upon myself. So big, big difference. In the old covenant is written on stone. In the new covenant it's written on the heart. Uh, number two, the new covenant is God's action to gather us to himself as a family of children. Okay? And we are equal to each other in his son. We are made the righteousness of God in Christ. We've talked about this a lot. We are made partners with Jesus, partners uh, together with the Holy Spirit. We are co-inheritors of the kingdom of God together with Jesus Christ. It says here that everyone will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And there will be no reason for us to go around pointing fingers at each other and saying, you need to know Jesus, you need to know Jesus. We all will know the Lord. That's a big difference in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there were certain people who were singled out and chosen by God, and obviously not because they were the greatest people on earth, because they all had big faults. People like Moses, people like David, uh, you know, people that were anointed by God, and that anointing came upon them, and they knew that they could lose that. Because David prayed, Let take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You remember after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the, the Hittite, her, her husband, in his prayer, he cried out to the Lord and said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He knew that he could lose that anointing of the Holy Spirit. But in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us. Now, we've been warned in chapter 6 already of what can happen if we go on sinning, if we reject the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ and reject his church and, and uh, disassemble ourselves uh, from, from his body. But leaving that aside, if we're truly following Jesus, do you know, 
just because you stumble and fall, even when you fail utterly, that doesn't mean that he's going to take his Holy Spirit away from you. We have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's why I think it's said to Hebrews, the, the Hebrew readers of this, um, that we already read, that by this time you all ought to be teachers already. And yet you're talking about how, you know, I can't do this, I can't do that, you know, or whatever. And said, so why? You have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And there's no, if somebody, just, you know, some five-year-old kid in our church gave his heart to Jesus and, uh, um, you know, in December of 2022 or, or two weeks ago, he doesn't have any less of the Holy Spirit on the inside of him than I have on the inside of me. And maybe, since Jesus said we need to have faith like little children, he's actually more faithful to the Lord than I am. Maybe I need to learn some things from him too. So it says, from the least to the greatest, everyone will know the Lord. Under the old covenant, it was not so. And under the old covenant, there was no change of heart for the people that would enable them to even continue in it. Number three, the new covenant brings mercy to our iniquities and forgiveness of our sin. And bluntly, that is something the old covenant was never designed to do. And there'll be more talked about this later, that the blood of bulls and goats and animals could never take away your sin. Only the blood of Jesus could do this. And finally, the last one, the new covenant is better than the old covenant for the very simple reason and logical reason that it's new. Everything that's new is better than old. That's not true in our world, is it? Just because you got a new car doesn't mean it's better than your old car. But when it comes to covenants, <laughs> and when it comes to what is being said here, the new wine is better than the old wine. Okay? The, this new vintage is way better than last year's grapes. This is the new covenant. And so the new covenant is a new covenant. And if God established a new covenant in Scripture... He has made it new, and he's made it with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That means that the old covenant, the reason, it just says it very plainly at the very beginning of this, that's because the old covenant had a fault. It was not able to save us. It had already served its purpose. So when this is being written, say, you know, two or three years before the temple has been destroyed, the writer of Hebrews already understands. Jesus already came. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has died for our sin. He has been raised up from the dead. He is already seated at the right hand of the Father. And so that means the old covenant doesn't have a meaning anymore. It's obsolete. It's been done away with. It is old. It's surpassed by something new. It's no longer in effect. So let's look, read now verse 13. It said, When he said, A new covenant... He has made the first one obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Whatever is becoming obsolete, that same thing is growing old. And whatever is growing old is ready to disappear. So the old covenant pertained only to the brief life that we have in this age. That it had nothing to do with, and, it, and the Ten Commandments are still in a force, you know, and, but they have all to do with our lives on this earth. If we walk in love, then the Bible tells us clearly that against such things there is no law. You don't even need the Ten Commandments if you walk in the love of God because you're not going to do evil unto your brother or your sister. The New Covenant has promised for eternal life. So the old covenant had to disappear, and it did disappear, literally disappear in AD 70. I never said the Old Testament in the sense of scriptures disappeared. That doesn't disappear, but the covenant. God made a new covenant, and now the Old Testament, the scripture, is perfected in the New Testament. When something is obsolete, that means that it no longer serves its purpose. It has grown old. And that means it's getting ready to die. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, I'll just read a couple of verses. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 
I was actually uh, either last night or the night before reading this. Uh, Frank and I have been kind of, he, he just likes to listen to me read it, reading, reading through the life of David. And we came to these scriptures, and the Lord really started speaking a lot of things to me. And I even say some of these things on Sunday. But Second um, Samuel chapter 21 that now. In 2 Samuel chapter 21 verse 15 um, and you need to understand in the context so before what we read in chapter 21 several big things have happened in the life of David. Number one the whole scandal with Bathsheba okay and then he comes out of that and he's doing okay out of that but then Absalom rebels against him and if you know the story from the scripture he so loves Absalom that when Absalom's put to death that he just mourns and he weeps so loudly. Oh, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, which, by the way, is prophetic of Jesus dying for us, for our sin. But it's so bad that the people are ready just to get rid of him as king because he's making them all feel guilty about the whole thing. And they're happy that Absalom's dead, because that means the war's over and he's back. And then after that, so you see him crushed on the inside. Then after that, uh, uh, Joab, who's his main general over all of his armies, begins to act treacherously toward, toward David. Joab's the one who actually killed Absalom when David commanded him not to do that. And then after that, a kind of strange story about some Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites had been wronged by King Saul. Very, 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 very evil things had been done to them by King Saul that you can read about in the scripture. And after everything, it seems like the dust has finally settled, God's not done. And God requires David to make restitution to the Gibeonites. And he won't release David from the curse uh, because of what Saul had done. Uh, it, it's coming on Israel. And so David prays to God, and God tells him, it's because of the Gibeonites. You, you've got to go make restitution. And he goes to them, and, and they say, all we want is for um, uh, the children of the man that did this to us to be given over for us and to be hanged for what they did to us. We don't want anything else bad to happen to Israel. And so David has to give up the children. They're actually grandchildren of Saul. And they're hanged publicly. And I won't go into the details, but it's all people that are really close to David, okay? <laughs> including Mephibosheth, if you know that story, but he's able to spare Mephibosheth because of the covenant he made with Jonathan. So, I mean, he's just been ripped inside and out, up and down, every which way that you can go. And everything has just gone, gone really hard for him in life. And honestly, David's tired. And so look at verse 15 talking about becoming obsolete. Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. We never read about that before. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, so this is a son of Goliath. Who killed Goliath? David. Well, his son wants revenge. Turns out, if you read through this, that Goliath actually had four sons. So he's the seed of, of Goliath. The weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zuriah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. And as you read on, the other sons of Goliath are killed, but they're all killed by people besides David. So David's military prowess, the thing that he's been known for since he was a youth, the one thing he really knows how to do in life, he's a warrior. And his ability to, concerning his ability to become a war, to, to, to make war, he's utterly obsolete. He's not able to do it anymore. And so the people actually say to him, you're more of a burden to us, David, when you're out here on the field of battle because we have to defend you. You stay home and just grow old and die. We don't need you anymore. And isn't that the story of everybody's life eventually? 
you know, I mean, it's sad to say, but eventually we, became, we, we can't do the things that we could do anymore. And every elderly person I know, including myself getting there, we want to remain active because we don't want to be obsolete. We know that the moment we become obsolete and unnecessary, you know, God forbid, but they might stick us in a home somewhere and nobody needs us anymore, nobody will visit us anymore, and we're just left there to die. So David, the end of his life actually begins on this day, and that's not the exact end of his life, but it's the beginning of the end for him. You know, it can be the same way with a local church, that when the church becomes obsolete, then it begins to die. When the church no longer is fulfilling the Great Commission, no longer is walking in the Spirit and doing the mission and the vision that God has called that church to do, and it happens all the time. It was happening in the book of Revelation. Five of those letters are written to churches that are becoming obsolete, and God is, Jesus is warning them, you are going to die, because when you become obsolete, you grow old, because nobody needs you anymore. And when you grow old, that's what happens, is you die. And this is what the picture of what God is being said in Hebrews about the law. Remember that the temple was still up at that time. So this was kind of shocking for them to hear this. But the fact of the matter is, what they're doing in Jerusalem is obsolete. It has no meaning anymore. A lot of times um, I've wondered about this, and people have asked me about this, and I don't have an exact answer. Because, you know, the book of Revelation and other places gives an idea that the temple would be rebuilt uh, in Jerusalem. And, and maybe it will be, okay? But maybe those are spiritual references to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ amongst Jew and Gentile. Um, but whatever the case may be, one thing I do know, if, if they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and if they offer, actually start offering up animal sacrifices again, and there are a whole lot of people working on that, by the way, it will still be obsolete. It's an absolutely meaningless thing. And that's not anti-Semitic. It's not saying anything bad, because it's actually, uh, the fact is the Jewish Messiah already came, and he's already fulfilled all these things. So that grew old, and that eventually vanished. It eventually passed away, and it happened just a few years after this was written. But the new covenant is better because it never is obsolete. It never loses its power. And it never grows old. It just continues for all eternity. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this evening. And I know that that's a lot of information, Lord. But I believe it's all focused around this one main message, Lord. I pray that we would walk in the new covenant that we have with you. And that we would order our lives according to the commandments and the laws of this new covenant which all boil down just to loving you and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, Lord. And that we would walk in the fullness of that face-to-face -face relationship with you that you desire for us to have in our lives, Lord. I just thank you for giving us a new covenant and for allowing us to be a part of that covenant and choosing us, electing us, picking us out, and taking us out of the Egypt that we once lived in, Lord, and delivering us over into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We give you praise and glory and honor for this. We hope you enjoyed the message. Amen. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.